The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. So I would ask at this time if you would please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. And as you do, I want to consider that ever since we began the second half of Isaiah chapter 6, we have been covering basically the same event that was about to take place. Isaiah has been prophesying about the judgment that God would carry out through the Assyrian Empire. And today we are going to conclude this section of Isaiah. But as we do, it's vital that you don't forget the players. We need to know who it is that's being spoken about. There are three main players that we find in these chapters. First, there are the enemies of God who recognize themselves to be the enemies of God. They know they are his opponents. In this case, the Assyrian army who defied God are his enemies, who acknowledge that they are enemies. We could easily summarize their thinking with Sennacherib's own words that he spoke in a letter to the nation. Now, remember, Mike read this for us last week from 2 Kings 19, verses 10 through 11. This wicked king wrote to the people of Judah, Do not let the God that you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will your God deliver you? We see that he is taunting them. He is not just taunting the people. He is acknowledging the fact that he thinks nothing of God. And there are still enemies of God who taunt him and who who defy his people. They assume that just because they've never experienced the judgment of God to this uh, yet, that there is no threat to them. They assume that just because God has shown them patience, that he either does not exist or he is too incompetent or impotent to do anything to correct them. God has addressed such people many times and condemned them in these chapters. There's a second group of people in these chapters. They are the people who think that they are friends of God, but they are actually enemies of God. And they can be epitomized by the way that they respond to God's warning when Isaiah spoke to them and told them to repent or perish. They said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10, Well, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. They think they're going to build back better, right? But what do we see here? This category of people also exists to this very day. There are people who are religious but they ignore God's clear commands. Why do they do that? Because they are more concerned with temporal things and because they are imagining that their own way is superior to God's ways. God has addressed this kind of people many times and he has condemned them in these chapters. But today, we're going to be focusing primarily on the third group of people in these chapters. This is the smallest of the three, but they are the ones that receive the good news. This is a group that Isaiah refers to as the remnant. These are the people of God who hear his voice and follow him. 
So let me pray now, asking that God would open our hearts to receive the word this morning. O great Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed here on earth. May Jesus be preeminent in all that I preach this morning. May he be preeminent in every heart and in every mind as we gather around the word. May your name be lifted high. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom. Cause us to find joy as we seek Jesus. Amen. The chapters before us this morning stretch from the beginning of chapter 11 through the end of chapter 12. Now, our approach to the text will be to break these two chapters down into seven main themes. And the first three themes deal with the nature of the Messiah, or as the text refers to him, the branch. And the last four focus on the response of the remnant to the branch. Now, I know that seven is a lot, and these are going to be relatively extensive titles, so they will be on the screen for you if that's helpful for your mind or for your note-taking. So we are going to first consider the branch's roots from a perplexing provenance, then the branch's rule of principled power, and then the branch's realm of perfect peace. And then we're going to shift into considering the remnant, and we will see the remnant's response to divine deliverance, the remnant's resolution to discordant dynasties, the remnant's reconciliation with a displeased defendant, and the remnant's responsibility to delight in their deliverance. We'll begin with theme number one, which is the branches roots from a perplexing provenance. Now, provenance simply means origin. It comes from a a strange place, a surprising place. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. After purchasing our home back in December, one of the first projects that I began doing, now that we actually had the ability to make changes in the house we've been living in for five years, one of the first things I did was to go into the backyard and to rip out as much as I could the hops that were growing all around the fence line. And I did my best to dig down and to take out every single root that I could find. Our landlord had grown these hops so that he could brew beer. Personally, I have no need or desire to do that, so I decided to get rid of this invasive plant. But even though I thought I had dug out and destroyed every last bit of the plant, there had to have been some roots left, because right now, in many places, they have returned with a vengeance and are growing with fury. Now, remnant... There is good news. There is good news that there is a remnant of people who truly belong to the Lord. And if you are a Christian, you are that remnant. The line of David was going to be cut down. God has been promising Judah that the people of Judah would fall and the king of Judah would fall and the dynasty would conclude. But it would not be destroyed. There is a Messiah that was coming. He is Now, depending on your translation, you might notice in your Bible that there are two words that are capitalized there in verse 1, shoot and branch. Some, for some reason, will just capitalize branch and some capitalize neither. But the translations that capitalize them do so because they are trying to grab your attention and say, this is not just speaking metaphorically of a tree. It is speaking about the Messiah that is to come. This is a prophecy about the fulfillment of God's covenant to his people. God is not going to leave you to your own devices. A hero is coming and he will save. 
Now, the imagery here will only really make practical sense to somebody who has, like me, attempted to rip up a plant and rip it out of existence, only to find it growing there again. Think of the prophecy as a slap in the face to the king of Assyria. He thought that he was going to be able to wipe them out. And later on, Nebuchadnezzar assumed he was going to be able to destroy and assimilate all the people so that eventually everyone left would just be Babylonian. We see that happening with Daniel and his friends when they are trained in the ways of Babylon. They are given names that are Babylonian, and they are often told exactly how they must serve and worship and speak in accordance with the ways of Babylon. Now, when Zedekiah becomes the last king of Israel, he falls, he dies, he fails, and the kingly line was broken. But there would never again be a king to sit on the earthly throne in Judah. There would never again be an earthly king who would occupy a temple or a house of uh, um, a palace there in Jerusalem. But there would be a descendant who would function as the king, who would operate in a, a heavenly throne. He was to be the descendant of Jesse. But out of the dust, this heir comes, and the very first verse of the New Testament bursts out and says, after 400 years of silence, these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't slow play it. He just throws it right out there. This is the one we have been waiting for. This is the promised one who was to come. And he says, the son of David. This seemingly destroyed plant, all that's left is, is some roots, probably under the, under the surface of the ground, yet it springs forth with life again. Now, as you're reading your Bible, you might let out a little sigh when you get to this genealogy and quickly scan through to see how long am I going to have to be reading these name after name after name, begat who, begat who, begat who. But don't overlook the point of what is being said here. The line is not broken. God's promises are firm. From a surprising place, the Messiah comes onto the scene. So he was so ignored that at his birth, consider, he, he was not even given place to stay in the inn. Even though they knew he was going to arrive, they had no way to recognize him. And while the very choirs of heaven were bursting out in glorious song, declaring his arrival, he was at that same moment being laid in a feeding trough that was probably used to feed animals that very day. It was the child that everybody in Israel was expecting, but nobody was really anticipating. But the offspring of David would exceed David in every way. He is the root, uh, the shoot of the root of Jesse. He has arrived. The Messiah is here. Which brings us to theme number two, the branches rule of principled power. What is this guy going to be like? Verse two. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Notice that the word spirit is capitalized. The obvious initial difference between the Messiah who was to come and everybody else who had ever sat on the throne was his relationship to the Holy Spirit. We see this played out all throughout the Gospels. Regularly, we are told about Jesus' dependence and relationship to the Holy Spirit. Consider that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. He was promising to baptize people. 
with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. The Spirit descended on him and rested on him like in the form of a dove. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was to be tempted. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And that's just the first four chapters of the first book of the New Testament. We see over and over and over Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit. But we know from the New Testament that this relationship was not new. He was not like us where we have a beginning and where we have to meet and encounter and be changed by the Holy Spirit. This relationship that Jesus had with the Holy Spirit long predates Matthew or Isaiah or even Adam. In fact, it predates the world itself as the Godhead has always been perfectly united. And they were joyfully displaying that unity in the life of Christ as he ministered to us here on earth. We just got to see it. It's always been this way. But we got to observe the way that they loved one another and the way that Jesus was so entwined with the third person of the Trinity. We also see that this branch would be a righteous judge of the earth. But this judge would not judge like anyone else before him. Now, sometimes judges are bad judges because they're incompetent. They just make a lot of mistakes. Sometimes judges make bad judgments because they don't have all the information. Sometimes judges are bad judges because they are desirous for a negative outcome for the individual. They dislike them. They have no desire to see them get justice. But here we see that this is going to be a good judge. Look at verses 3 and 4. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. When the case is tried in court, what are they actually doing? What are the lawyers' jobs in this in this courtroom setting? Well, they do two things primarily. They talk and they show evidence. They try to persuade with their words and with their props. And they do so sometimes to great effect, which results in a change of mind in the judge. Now, remember, at this time, there is no such thing as a jury. The jury came into existence because we realized how flawed a single individual might be. Maybe if we add 12 more, we might get more things right. Well, here, what we see is that this judge, this branch, will have no need of such tools. He will never have to listen to anybody else speak. He will never have to see any evidence. He will just know what is right, and what is true. He is unable to be mistaken. He is unable to be bribed. He cannot be coerced or tricked into making an unjust judgment because he judges based upon his own character. And the fact that he knows everything allows him to look at you and see whether or not you are righteous. So he judges with righteousness, not with evidence. He sees right through you. No one can hide. So when he judges, he does so perfectly. And you see here that the sentence that he passes down are carried out not by a prison, not by a guard, not by a bailiff. They are carried out by the judge himself. It says that he is going to carry them out by the word of his power as he strikes the wicked down with the word of his mouth. All he has to do is exhale and all of his enemies will die. There is none that can stand against him. Verse 5 might sound familiar to you if you know 
your New Testament well. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, what we will see multiple times throughout Isaiah is that this concept of armor is uh, as being described as his attributes is common. And what we will notice is that when we speak about the full armor of God that is given to us in Galatians, what we are speaking about is not just armor that we own. It is his suit of armor that we are allowed to wear. He has given us his very own defense. He has given us his very own righteousness and his very own faithfulness that we wear into battle. We can only do so because our conquering champion has done it first on our behalf. The Lord is a warrior. Mighty is he in battle. Theme three, the branches realm of perfect peace. We see this in verses six through nine, which says the wolf shall lay down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand into the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now there are some elements of chapter 11 that are almost universally accepted and agreed upon by all Orthodox scholars. The who is certainly Jesus, but in this section, the what and the when is challenging and it has been widely debated. And I honestly can tell you, we will not solve this question today. But what I'm going to do here is give you a couple of possible ways to understand this. First of all, there are many who take this as a literal renewal of creation. They believe this is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. And what it's speaking about here is the fact that we will have literal interspecies peace like they had at the beginning in the garden. Toddlers will be poking around in cobra pits with no fear of the threat to their lives. And it's very possible that this is the correct understanding of the text. One of the reasons why that's a possible explanation is because when Isaiah prophesies, there are many occasions when he is prophesying about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ at the same time. And we just have to do the hard work of figuring out which part is referring to the first and which is referring to the second. But there are many who believe that this is a literal reference to what is coming in heaven. It, and this is very possible. It very well be that we are looking forward in this text to what heaven itself might look like, and it is revealing our own future and showing us that it looks much like the distant past. It may be that our heavenly experience will echo in many ways heaven or Eden itself as the animal kingdom will be present and all will be in harmony. That's the literal perspective. However, due to the poetic nature of the text and the way that these metaphors are used later in this book and later on in the New Testament, it's possible that this is not a literal statement. It is possible that this is a metaphorical declaration, and it's a fact that the branch is coming to emancipate us from everything that causes us fear and threat of harm. And he's not going to do that by taking us out of the world, but by giving us safety within it. 
Now, I'm not exactly sure which one it is. Some who uh, believe this is referring to this section of time are declaring that the church itself is safe, regardless of which of these two interpretations you find to be more correct. The point remains the same. We have no need to fear. We don't need to fear the future, and we don't need to fear the present because we trust the sovereign king of the universe to order and direct our lives. He walks with us through the very shadow valley of the shadow of death, so therefore we will fear no evil. But there will also come a future day after we experience death that we will then be the church victorious and the church at rest. Our strivings will cease, and at that point new songs will begin. Sin will be at most a very distant memory. Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 and 4 says, But behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's just like Eden. Just like it was before the fall. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain any more, for former things have passed away. It's very possible that this is future. It's very possible that this is a declaration of the peace we have in the church present. But the point of the matter is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. Now we are going to shift away from speaking directly about the character and the nature and work of the branch, and we are going to see how that affects the remnant with theme number four. How many people, or how are people going to respond to this branch? Here's theme four, the remnant's response to divine deliverance. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal, or this is like the term for flag, for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now notice, this is speaking not about the first return from exile, but a second kind of return from exile. Now there have been rumblings throughout the past several chapters of Exodus language. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 26 through 27, we read, and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken. This is deliverance language. This is Exodus language. God is going to send the greater Moses who is going to come and set his people free. He is going to release them from their bondage and slavery that they have experienced. And this slavery goes far deeper than just brick making in Egypt. It goes much deeper than having whips go across your back as you are told to make more bricks with less materials. Here what we see is that there's going to be a kind of freedom from the chains of sin and bondage that we have to our own nature. There's going to be freedom to pursue God. John chapter 8 verse 34 Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But there's freedom in Jesus. He whom the Son sets free 
is free indeed. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 through 18 says, But thanks be to God that you, you who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He has given us a new master, Christ himself. Now the first exodus was just one of freedom externally of the people from Egypt. There's nothing wrong with that. That was a phenomenal work of God. But it pales in comparison to the second exodus that we are seeing commanded and told here in this chapter. This passage from Isaiah chapter 11 is explaining to us that people are going to be drawn from Jesus, to Jesus from every corner of the earth. The remnant is going to be drawn from every single nation. He notes particularly some nations here by name. Some of these that are listed are a bit surprising because the people of Israel are not there. They have not been dispersed to these locations. Egypt, Cush, Assyria, Shinar, or Babylon. We also see the coastlands. That's Philistine territory. All of the names that are listed here, interestingly enough, are the greatest historical enemies of Israel. And he's not saying, I'm just going to pull my people back out of those places. Rather, what he is saying here is that my remnant will originate in those places. This does not mean that he is just going to pull back national Israel out of a diaspora. Rather, it is a declaration that even the greatest enemies of God are capable to be redeemed and brought into the family of God. Do you see the good news in this? That we are not Israelites, most of us at least. We are not of the nation of Israel or Judah. He is promising that there are going to be people that come into this kingdom from every tribe and tongue and language. And that is good news because that is us. In him, we have the ability to be completely renewed and restored. Although genealogically, biologically, our bloodline has no merit for us whatsoever. Which brings us to theme number five, the remnant's resolution to discordant dynasties. Verse 13 through 16 says, The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. There's a lot going on here. We're certainly not going to see everything, uh, but there's much that is being spoken about regarding family feuds, long-standing dynastic dysfunction. The tribes and the nations listed here were known for constantly battling against one another. In particular, you'll notice that he mentions Ephraim and Judah. That's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He says there's eventually going to be peace there. And then he mentions these other nations that are problematic historically for the people of Israel. He says the branch has promised to bring peace to warring factions. Much has been said in recent days about racial reconciliation in our nation. And this is a very important topic, and it's a topic that requires immense attention. 
And most likely, everybody in this room has strong opinions about what I'm about to say. And I have a sense that most people probably tensed up a little bit, even as I said these words. Because depending on what I say, you may look at this and say, this doesn't meet the criteria of what I desire to see happen in our nation. What I want you to understand is that diversity is a good thing in the kingdom of God. God has created all people in his image. And we live in the most racially diverse nation in the history of the world. Yet, ripples of historic prejudices continue to crash like waves onto our shores. And why do they do that? Because sin divides people. Sin is the root cause of all division between individuals. Racism, which I define by believing that anyone is inferior to you because of their skin color or nation of origin or language or any other physical attribute, that is a form of self-idolatry. It is worshiping you. You want people to be like you, and if they are not, then God has made someone less than you. It is an evil way of thinking. It is a denial of the hand of God in the creation of all mankind in his image. Race divides us. Class divides us. Political uh, positions and parties divide us. These are real challenges to our society. They're very real challenges, but they're not new to us. These are as common as sand on the seashore. These are in every nation at every point in history. We as Christians, however, need to be keenly awake to real forms of injustice that actually occur and exist. We need to be desirous to pull Uh, to pursue fair and just treatment of all people. We need to see if there is any factual problem in our country or in our city, and we need to desire and pursue forms of correction in those areas. And we must agree on that goal because God is a God of justice and God's people should be people of justice. However, we do not have to agree on how to get there. I know that many people are dividing in our country right now along political lines because our political parties have divided in how they desire to pursue reconciliation and justice. And I will will tell you, it is important for us as Christians to recognize we have an identical goal regardless of your political party. Even if we do get every single law on the books in such a way that they are just and every single rule in our country to be fair and give everyone equal opportunity, which we have come a long way farther, I believe, than anywhere in any part of the world in the history of the world. Yet, even if we get all of those things right perfectly to a T, we will still have to battle prejudice because it is not born out of experience or learned behavior, as sociologists suggest today. These things are born out of the nature of our hearts to divide. We are never going to achieve person-to-person reconciliation in a fallen world. And that's not our goal. We should be pursuing civility and fairness, but ultimately without Christ, reconciliation is not possible. But church, we need to learn a couple of things from this particular text. First of all, the church is the place where actual reconciliation between historic enemies takes place. The book of Philemon is a story of a runaway slave. He is somebody who did not desire to serve his master any longer. Onesimus 
uh, he, he departs from his master and he goes over a thousand miles away where some would look at this and say this is coincidence. We can look and see clearly this is providence. God directs him to a city even so far away to somebody that not only is a Christian who leads him to Christ, but somebody who personally knows Philemon and also led Philemon to Christ. And now Paul who shares the gospel with Onesimus, sends Onesimus back to his own master. Consider the number of things that would have to be worked out in their relationship. Consider what that must have been like as they would have had to rediscover power dynamics, as they would have had to discuss how it is that they were going to get over past grievances. Think of the forgiveness that must have taken place. They have sinned against one another. And this is not just historic This is present. This is their own individuals. It would be like a plantation owner owning a slave who runs away, goes to the north during the Civil War, gets saved, and the slave comes back and they become brothers with one another. Do you see the bizarre nature of what is being said here? We have this incredible opportunity for reconciliation in the church. We have the ability to be forgiving people to one another. Brothers and sisters, If you have anything against anyone in this body, you are called to go to them and be unified to them. You are called to confront them if they are in sin and correct the the thing dividing you. Like Yodia and Syntyche, who were not getting along in the book of Philippians, we urge you to agree in the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're always going to Vote the same way. It doesn't mean that you're marching at the same rallies. It doesn't mean you're watching the same news stations. But it does mean that if you are in Christ, you must view your brothers and sisters as fellow heirs with Christ, not as your opponents. These are the people you will be with in eternity. They are much closer to you than anyone else who looks like you or votes like you or thinks like you. Secondly, we need to learn here that we have a real opportunity on our hands. We have an incredible opportunity as the people of God to show the world that their forms of reconciliation keep failing. Why do they keep failing? Because they don't have Christ. But we as the church have something they don't. The world should look to the church and be baffled at how we are able to accomplish what the UN has never been able to achieve. We have peace with one another that we are able to value one another and honor one another and serve one another like Christ has served us. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be like our Savior and be peaceable. And we have this peace because not only has he broken down the barrier between us and the Father, he has broken down the barrier between us and us. So now we have freedom to love and to serve like our Savior has served us. Which brings us to theme number six, the remnant's reconciliation to a, a displeased defendant. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Dear remnant here in this building right now, this is the best news that you could ever hear, that the wrath of God that rested over you like a cloud is no longer over you. Instead, it has been turned away, and you are experiencing nothing but the comfort of God himself. The question is... How does this happen? How is it possible that God's anger could be turned away? Now, this is the key to understanding the entire Bible. If you get this right, then you will understand why Jesus died. If you do not know or understand this, you will never have any hope of comprehending what God's plan of salvation truly was. 
Here's the point. Listen carefully. God cannot simply decide that he will no longer be angry. He cannot just decide to get over it. His anger is not like ours. You can be angry about anything at any time, whether it's something that is worthy of anger or not. What is taking them so long? I am angry. Why in the world will my children not listen to me? I am angry. But then you get them buckled in the car seat and you're fine. Our anger is different than God's anger. Our anger does not always receive justice in order to be appeased. God is immutable. He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his laws will never be relaxed, and your past will never be erased, which means there is no hope that God's anger will ever be removed from you just because enough time has passed or just because he feels like, well, that wasn't such a big deal. So how then can it possibly occur that his anger would be turned away? Those who were receiving this prophecy in Isaiah's original audience would know the answer. If they knew their Old Testament, if they knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they knew that something had to die. If they were going to ever appease the wrath of God, it would require blood. The entire sacrificial system was designed to teach the Israelites that their sin could never simply be swept under the rug. Every time that anyone sins, it is going to be paid for by the wrath of God. It will either... His wrath will either find satisfaction in retributive justice on you, or it has found justice on his son. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away a single sin. They were merely a foreshadowing of the true sacrifice that would cover all the sins of God's remnant. This is why verse 2 screams out, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. How is it that God has become our salvation? How is it that God has saved us from God's own wrath and anger? It is because God himself, the second person of the Trinity, was born into our world and died in our place. He has become salvation because he has turned the wrath away from God's people for eternity And God provides what God demands. In Christ, we see the wrath of God poured out at the cross. Now, if you are currently living in rebellion against the Lord, I plead with you to turn to him. There is no sinner too far gone that cannot be restored and reconciled to the Father by the blood of Jesus the Son. And if you have been reconciled, then you are called to rejoice, which is what we see in our next theme, theme number seven the remnant's responsibility to delight in their deliverance. It says in verse three, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It should shock you, I think, that God cares at all about your joy. I mean, politicians don't care about your joy. Historic kings don't care about your joy. They care about your taxes. They they care about your votes. God doesn't care about those things. He, he cares about you. He loves you. And he is interested not just in your fealty and your allegiance. He wants you to have joy, genuine joy. He is not self-seeking. He is, he is serving you. God cares so much for his people that he commands them to have joy. One Puritan scholar named John Trapp once wrote, 
no duty is more pressed in both Testaments than rejoicing in the Lord. It is no less a sin to not rejoice than it is to not repent. Do you see what he's saying here? Your lack of joy is a sin just as much as your refusal to stop your other forms of sin. The world has a billion machinations producing counterfeit joy every day. Sports, movies, Facebook, shopping, parties, the list goes on and on and on. Frivolity, ways that we find to make ourselves smile during the day. And the world has come up with lots of interesting ways to get a temporary fix of fun. COVID-19, I think, has helped us actually and served us in the sense that it has revealed just how shallow and undependable those substitutes are. True joy is only found by experiencing Christ and his salvation. But the question is, what are these wells of salvation? Obviously, a well is a place that you would go to find liquid to sustain your life. People didn't go to the hard work of walking down to this stone circle and dropping in a bucket and pulling up. I don't know how how much you carry water. Water is heavy. It is not something simple. And, And they would fill it up in stone jars. These are not light things. This is a difficult thing to do. And he's saying here, you are responsible to go and draw water from these wells of salvation. People did this with actual wells because they recognized that deep in the ground was something necessary for life. Now notice that wells here is plural. There are multiple avenues that we have to experience streams of grace from God. Now I want to share with you something that's personal. And and generally speaking, I don't do this. And I don't do this because I think it produces sometimes the wrong effect. It can sometimes produce guilt, which is not what I desire. I I, I want to tell you that uh, this week I was deeply discouraged, Um, perhaps more discouraged than I've ever been as a pastor. And I was discouraged. Think back for a moment to last Sunday. Last Sunday, I made an announcement. Wednesday night worship is back. We're going to have our first Wednesday worship. And people literally cheered. Do you know how difficult it is to have somebody cheer during the announcements unless there's a new wedding or baby born? That never happens. And then Wednesday night rolled around and we had eight people who came in. Now, please understand the reason I am speaking about this now. The reason for my discouragement. It is not what you might think. Jonathan preached an excellent sermon. It was one that was expertly researched and brilliantly presented. And I wish more people would have heard it, but I am not primarily concerned about Jonathan being discipled as a preacher, although I certainly am desirous for that. And you probably know that large groups produce excitement and camaraderie and enthusiasm. But I'm not really very interested in those emotions, although they're good things. But those things fade out with the vicissitudes of life and are very vapid in reality. My discouragement comes from the fear that I think I might have failed as a pastor to help our flock develop a healthy appetite for the wells of salvation where you can find joy. I was just speaking to Jim Capo yesterday, former pastor of the Massapequa Church of God, and I was speaking to him because uh, if you received the email that he tested positive for COVID. And I also discovered that his wife and one of his daughters has also tested positive. 
So I was speaking to him and just seeking to encourage him and, and see how we could pray well for him. Uh, and, and I want you to know that he had the virus for 10 days before he actually took the test. And so he knew that something was wrong and he assumed it was COVID, but he didn't know for sure until then. But he was fairly confident that he had the virus because he had the symptoms. And do you know what one of the most obvious tells of a virus is? It's a loss of appetite. You just don't feel like eating any longer. I, I want to know if you thirst for the Lord. Don't get me wrong. God is just as present in your home as he is in the church right now or on a Wednesday night. But those who are really thirsty, those who actually have a sense of, of desire, they, they really will exhaust any avenue to find water. They will do whatever it takes to get to it, including digging a giant hole in the ground and walking down to a hole every morning and every afternoon to draw up more water. God has provided multiple avenues for you to pursue Christ. He has provided prayer and scripture reading and memorization and meditation and singing hymns and songs and and, uh, and spiritual songs. And these are all excellent ways for us to worship the Lord. And they can be done on your own. They can be done by yourself in your closet. And they should be. These are all excellent ways of personal and private worship. But those who have their eyes set on heavenly things desire to experience a foretaste of heaven as we worship the Lord corporately. The scriptures are both explicitly and implicitly demanding our unified front as we worship the Lord as a body. The New Testament knows no such thing as a a solo believer who does things on their own. Gatherings together in worship, that is one of the most wonderful refreshers of our joy that we experience in Christ. You're going to get torn down constantly by the world. I desire for us to go to the well of gathering together to pursue Christ. My assumption is, and I could be very wrong, my assumption is if there is a lack of hunger for the word that reveals itself in a lack of attendance, there's probably a lack of hunger in the other avenues of grace as well. And that was cause for discouragement. Now, I know that there are some who are uncomfortable joining us due to the risk of COVID. Uh, If you're listening to me right now, please know that I'm not speaking to you with this admonition. If wisdom dictates that for health reasons, some people should have separation, then please continue to worship the Lord from a distance, although we desire for you to be back. Uh, One way to to join, even if you are unable to join on Wednesday nights, maybe you can't physically get here. We have a Tuesday night Bible uh, prayer meeting Every week, led by Gideon, and it's not in person. It is on Zoom. If you have access to a computer, the internet, you can do that from wherever you are. So I encourage you, even without leaving your bedroom, you have the ability to, in that sense, draw from these wells together. Now, in this text, there is a shift that you don't see in English, but is very present and clear in the original Hebrew. It says in verse 4, in that day, er, and you will say, in that day. Now, notice chapter 3. I'm sorry, uh, verse 3 says that you will say, and then here in verse 4 it says you will say. But there's a distinction here because the first one is personal and private. The second one is a plural and corporate declaration. In, in uh, In this instance, the you being plural is somewhat like we could say, you guys, or y'all, if you're from the South, or like my Pennsylvania Dutch uh, great aunt used to say, you guys. The Lord says, 
You, all who are the remnant, you who believe, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Ray Ortland says of this, and I love it, he says, Do you realize we are listening to our own voices from the future? This is the remnant song to the Savior. Here we are seeing what it will be like as we worship around the throne forever. Brothers and sisters, don't wait until that. We have a foretaste of heaven in the church. I want you to sing, as we close in a moment, for the glory of God like we are seeing people sing in this moment. I want you to sing like you will. This is just a preview of what you will experience long into the future. The branch, the Messiah, he is worthy of our praises. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we come before you thanking you that you do provide wells of grace, wells of salvation. Lord, our salvation is accomplished in the Son, but we get to experience that daily. Lord, I pray that each one of us would would do so, that we would go through those disciplines in order to experience the grace that has been provided. Help us to be faithful in prayer and faithful in scripture intake and memorization and meditation and singing and faithful to gather. Lord, I know that to an extent I am preaching to the crowd, to the choir in that sense, that they are here and others may not be. But Lord, I pray that there would be a strong hunger for this avenue of grace that you have provided. Lord, for all of the other things that we have covered this morning, the many things that are glorious in this passage, we thank you. We thank you that you sent the branch out of the root of Jesse. We pray that you would bless us now by trusting in him. Amen.